Looking forward to opening the word together this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now, let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Rottweilers are terrifying creatures to me. I don't know about you. Pit bulls, terrifying creatures to me. German shepherds, I have some stories I could tell you about sometime from my childhood that uh, have me spooked. Um, Big dogs in general just are fearsome creatures to me. However, I don't feel confused when somebody has a big dog uh, to protect from home invasion, for example, because there's a principle at work that I really do believe in, um, and it's something like this. Uh, If you could advance that, I'm not sure. Oh, I'm off. Okay. When what we fear is especially fearsome, only something else fearsome can protect us, right? When what we fear is especially fearsome, only something else fearsome can protect us, right? So that's why in the movies, when the scary aliens, the big scary aliens are coming to invade Earth, what do the humans do? They build even bigger, even scarier robots to protect the planet from the aliens. And what we fear is especially fearsome. Only something else fearsome can protect us. And that works out in any number of ways in our own everyday lives. We just became homeowners recently. It's terrifying thinking about, okay, now every month for the rest of my life, I'm going to be paying this homeowner's insurance bill. That's a terrifying thought. Um, The only reason that I would do something so terrifying is because it's more terrifying, or it's also terrifying at least, to have my house burned down and not have anything left, right? So when what we fear is especially fearsome, only something else fearsome can protect us. That's not the big idea today, just to operating principle. And here's the thing. Everyone here this morning, I could imagine, is facing something fearsome in your life, something that seeks to terrify you. Um, Maybe it's the spouse that keeps berating you and doesn't show any signs of stopping. Maybe it's the bill that's coming due here on the first of the month that you don't know how you're going to pay. Maybe it's that you just had yet another birthday and you just don't know if you're ever going to find that person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. The question I have at the outset this morning is, have you found something, someone sufficiently fearsome as a defender to protect you from your fears? Have you found something sufficiently fearsome to protect you from your fears. Our scripture today speaks to that question. It's already been read once today, but would you turn with me to Psalm 76? Psalm 76. You're going to want to stay open there as we walk through it together today. It's written by Asaph. He was the number one worship leader in Israel in King David's day 3,000 years ago. And Psalm 76 is his contribution to what we've been calling the Psalms of Zion. These are certain songs uh, in the book of Psalms that speak of this place, Zion, that we've defined as God's people in God's place, experiencing God's presence. And these Psalms of Zion are songs celebrating Zion and especially the God who makes himself known there. What's unique about our psalm today, Psalm 76, among the Psalms of Zion is that Asaph, while he's calling on us to praise the God of Zion, 
presents this God as someone fearsome. He presents this God as someone fearsome. And it makes us question, well, I mean, just take a look at it so you know that I'm not making that up. Uh, If we just scan the passage, verse 7, you are to be feared. Verse 8, the earth feared. Verse 11, him who is to be feared. Verse 12, who is to be feared. You see that? So it's clear what's at the forefront of Asaph's mind about the God of Zion in this particular psalm. The question I have as I'm reading this for the first time uh, is, Psalms are supposed to be songs of praise. How can I praise someone that I fear? Or why would I fear someone that I praise? Right? If, think about it. If, if, if you feared your spouse, you probably wouldn't be very forthcoming in praise to them. If, if you feared your boss at work, you probably wouldn't be gushing to others about your workplace environment. So how is Asaph going to present this situation in which We're supposed to be fearing the one we praise and praising the one we fear. Let's think about that as I read this one more time. Would you stand with me as you're able uh, in reverence for God's word? I'm going to read through the psalm one more time. And we're thinking about how could I fear someone I praise? How could I praise someone I fear? Psalm 76. To the choir master with stringed instruments, the psalm of Asaph, the song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both Rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The big idea I see there is something like this. Because our Lord fights on our behalf, we both praise him and fear him. There's a lot to be unpacked in that, but... That's the argument that Asaph is making in the form of a song. Because our Lord fights on our behalf, we both praise him and fear him. This text unfolds in three sections that answer three questions. So first we'll answer the question, who is the Lord? Then what has he done? And then how should we respond? Who is the Lord? What has he done? How should we respond? Let's look first at that first question, which is answered in verses 1 through 3. Who is the Lord? And I think the answer that we're going to see there is that the Lord is the divine warrior who lives in Zion. The Lord is the divine warrior who lives in Zion. Well, what do we mean that he lives in Zion? Let's trace it here. So in verse 1, in Judah, God is known. Then within Judah is a city called Salem in verse 2. That's Jerusalem, right? Another name for that. It says there that Salem is his abode, which is another word for tent or tabernacle. It's the same word used for 
the den of a lion, and which is why later in that verse it says that his dwelling place is there in Zion. So maybe we call time out right there at that point because you may be thinking this, and it's a good question. It's an important question. I thought God lived everywhere. Right? Don't Christians believe that? And so how could the psalmist say that God's dwelling place is in Jerusalem or in Zion <clears throat> when he's supposed to be a God who is everywhere? It's an important question, and indeed, Scripture indicates that our God lives everywhere. In Jeremiah 23, it says, Do I not fill heaven and earth? Um, he's often talked about as living in heaven. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Scripture even teaches, believe it or not, that in hell, <clears throat> people who are there can't escape from his presence. It says in Revelation 14 that they'll be tormented in the presence of the Lamb forever and ever. Uh, so God truly is everywhere, according to Scripture. So how could he just be living in one place here in this psalm? And I think maybe the answer when we look at the whole counsel of Scripture as, as it relates to God's dwelling place is maybe something like this. While God can truly be said to dwell in Jerusalem or in heaven or in any place where his people are gathered, <clears throat> He doesn't dwell everywhere in exactly the same way, right? Um, yes, he does live everywhere, but he can't be contained by any one of those places. So when the psalmist says he lives in Zion, <clears throat> the psalmist is not saying that he's confined by Zion. Rather, he's saying that in Zion, God lives there in, in a special particular way. What's special and particular about it? Well, for one thing, it's where he makes himself known to his people. We see that in the text. For another thing, it's where his people have special access to him, heightened access to him that they don't have in the same way everywhere. And so maybe as a summary, if we're answering the question, where does God live? And we're searching scripture to find the answer to that question, the answer we'd have to give is something like, he lives everywhere, but he doesn't live everywhere in precisely the same way that he lives in Zion. Zion, his people in his place with his presence. I think when we're thinking that way, it becomes more clear in this passage than what's so great about Zion. And what's so great about Zion is not the buildings that are there. What's so great about Zion is the knowing that takes place there, actually. Do you see that in verse 1? That's how Asaph starts this psalm. He puts it in the number one position of priority. In Judah, God is known. And that knowing there, that word known, that's not a word talking about mere intellectual knowing, right? That's the word, uh, not to be graphic in any way, but that's the word that is used in the fourth chapter of the Bible when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and as a result, she conceived a child, right? It's an, it's an intimate sort of knowing. It's, it's a deep knowing. It's a personal knowing. It's not a distant or abstract knowing. And if you've known a committed Christian who's said to you something like, my Christian faith is not so much a religion as it is a relationship. Anybody ever heard that? Christianity is, is not so much a religion as a relationship. That's what Christians are talking about when they say things like that. They're saying that the goal, the great goal of Christianity, the, the aim of Christianity, the prize of Christianity is to know God intimately, personally. It's this relationship 
that we have with him. Not knowing him in a way that we just recite facts about him, but knowing him in the way that a bridegroom knows, or a bride knows a bridegroom. Uh, and isn't that what Jesus says too? In Psalm, or in uh, John 17, he says, and this is eternal life. And we kind of hang on there in that moment and we say, okay, what's he going to say? Is he going to say mansions in paradise? Is he going to say getting to see Aunt Maisie again? He says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the prize of our faith. A question this morning is, is, is this the sort of relationship that you have with our God. An intimate one, a personal one. The God who was otherwise unknowable made himself known to you and to me because he wanted a personal relationship with you. Have you yet taken him up on that greatest of all offers to be in a personal relationship with the one true God? In 1998, I knew about God, but I didn't know God. In 1998, I... I, I I had memorized a lot of scriptures I could recite to you. I could tell you a lot of facts about God. I even believed strongly, intellectually, about God. I knew about God. I didn't know God yet. It was late that year, 1998, that suddenly I found myself not just knowing about God, but knowing him. Have you had that experience yet in your own life? There's a caution, though. It's important to make sure that we don't develop a relationship with a God that we just imagine in our minds, that we craft in our minds because he's the sort of God that we would like there to be, right? It's important that if we want a relationship with the one true God, that we're getting into a relationship with the God who's actually there. And so a question that this text, even the early verses of this text raises, is do you still want a relationship with the God who is there even when... He reveals himself as a warrior. You see that in this text, verse 3 in particular? When he makes himself known as a man of war, is that still the God you want a relationship with? Maybe you love when he's pictured as a prince of peace. You love thinking about his kindness, his grace, his forgiveness. Maybe his beauty appeals to you, but... When the scriptures talk about a God going to war, that maybe starts to strike you as a bit distasteful. Maybe it's even barbaric in your mind, and that's not the sort of God anymore that you would naturally gravitate toward a relationship with. Yet, here it is, verse 3. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. And you might say, well, actually, maybe that's peaceful because he's breaking the weapons of war. But remember, he's not just breaking arrows and swords in verse 3, is he? He's breaking shields, too, which are defensive weapons. This is a God who clearly, at times, is on the offensive, picturing himself as a man of war, going on the offensive against his enemies. And there's no way around it. In this psalm, or in the rest of Scripture, the God who wants to be known personally by human beings has made himself known, in part, as a warrior. As a warrior. And not just any warrior, an unstoppable warrior. You know those superhero movies, again, where there's uh, a character who has an indestructible weapon? Right, Thor has a hammer, indestructible hammer. Captain America has a shield, indestructible shield. And you watch movie after movie in which 
this indestructible weapon comes to the rescue, saves the day, the good guys win, right? But then what happens when a movie comes in the series and they meet a new opponent and this new opponent takes the indestructible hammer and just snaps it in half or takes the indestructible shield and just shatters it like glass, right? That's a shocking moment. And that's the sort of shock that Asaph pictures here in verse 3 when the greatest weapons known to humankind are treated like they're a bunch of straw in God's hands. Snaps them just like that. That's the sort of warrior that he presents himself as. Is this the God that you want to know? We surely want to know the compassionate and merciful and kind and good God. And scripture does talk about him that way. And Psalm 76 by no means negates the picture of God as compassionate and merciful and kind. However, as solid as those truths are, as compassion and kindness, this truth is solid as well. That at times he rises up as a warrior to vanquish his foes. Now let's just talk about it if that feels distasteful to you. Because uh, I get it. It's felt distasteful to me at moments too. But here's where I go then when I'm, in that, when I'm in that place and thinking that way. I think about the great evils of this world. Think about that with me for a moment. Genocide. A child being abused late in the night. A family who's in poverty in Southeast Asia being told that their young daughter is going to be taken to get a good job and make a new life for herself only to have her taken and trafficked for her to have her body used. When I think about those greatest of human evils. If there's no part of my conception of God that includes him being a warrior, that can rise up and fight against those evils and wants to rise up and fight against those evils, I don't know what hope I have. I don't know how I go to sleep at night. If I've got a God who either isn't strong enough to rise up and fight against those evils and defeat them, or even worse, if I've got a God who is strong enough but is too nice to rise up as a warrior and defeat those greatest of evils on the planet, I don't know that I have a God worth worshiping or even praying to anymore. In other words, many of us have found that as hard as it is to think about God's warrior nature, as distasteful as that may initially seem, on final analysis, God's warrior nature is actually far less distasteful than the alternative, that he's a God who's just always playing nice-nice. That's our first section about the God who is there. We're ready to move on to the second section, but I want to honor that word Selah at the end of verse 3. It means something like pause and reflect, so let's just... Honor that with a moment of silent contemplation before we move on to verse 4. Okay, we've seen who the Lord is. Now we're going to ask what he's done. Verses 4 through 9 answer that question, and they answer that question in this way. The Lord has made good on his commitment to bless and protect his people. The Lord has made good on his commitment to to bless and protect his people. Scan those verses with me again, just so we refresh our memories. Verses 4 through 9. Summary there is that there are enemies that seemed poised to invade and overrun Jerusalem, Zion, and then God acted suddenly and decisively to save his people in his place where his presence dwelt. 
Now, what time is this talking about? What, which enemies does it have in mind? We can't be sure. Uh, maybe because it's not specified here in this text, it can apply to any, any number of situations in which God has risen up to deliver his people decisively. Um, but what we see here in these verses is an idea that we saw the seeds of in verses 1 to 3 get further developed. That God's people are finding that the one who's on their side is even more fearsome than the enemy at their gates. And we find out here more of why he's so fearsome. That word at the beginning of verse 4, glorious, um, that, that word is just so easy for us to gloss over. I wish Maybe some of your translations have the word resplendent. That's a little bit better, or, or, um, or radiant and light. That's more of what that word's getting here in this context. It's, it's saying that whereas some warriors put on battle gear or armor, our God actually puts on light when he goes into battle. I couldn't help but think of um, professional wrestlers that I used to watch when I was in middle school and the outfits that they come out in. Uh, anybody know who this one is? This was the most intimidating one for me when I was in, in junior high. Like, wow, that outfit is scary when he comes out. Who is that? The Undertaker, right? Um, the Undertaker comes out and he's got his music and you're like, wow, that's a scary entrance. But then I was thinking, you know what would be a really scary entrance as I was reading this text? If a competitor came out one time and was just wrapped in the sun and stars, like gaseous balls of light, and everybody in the arena is getting instant sunburn and going blind, like that would be actually really intimidating. That's kind of like the picture that Asaph is trying to present of our warrior God. He's glorious. He's wrapped in light when he goes into battle. And as we know, not everyone who's dressed intimidatingly can back it up, but our God can. And he does. You see it in verse 5. It's talking about the stout-hearted in the enemy army. These are the sorts of people who eat nails in their breakfast cereal and wrestle lions. They're the most stout-hearted of the enemies. But what happens when they meet God? They're beaten. Their possessions are taken. They fall asleep. They sink into sleep, verse 5, which is talking about the final sleep of death. In the end, it's just riders and horses strewn across the ground. That's the scene when God gets done with them. That makes it a little bit more clear, a confusing part of verse 4 earlier. If we kind of rewind to that, what was that talking about? More majestic than the mountains full of prey? Now we know what that means. It's these enemy armies who are gathered on the mountains outside Jerusalem, poised to attack. They're ready. They've prepared for this day. They're feeling confident because they see a weakness in their enemy that they're about to exploit. When God looks at those mountains swarming with enemy soldiers, the stout-hearted, all he sees is prey. They're just prey to him. Why? Because just one of him, one warrior on Zion's side, is more majestic, to use the language of verse 4, than all the mountains full of the most stout-hearted enemy soldiers. It's a reminder, isn't it, that no one can stand up to our God. Isn't that what verse 7 says? Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? It reminds us of Psalm 2, right at the beginning of the book of Psalms, in which it talks about how God laughs when even the strongest rulers on earth try to rise up against him. Why does he laugh? Because he knows that his power is real, and even the greatest powers of any earthly army are just imaginary. God's power is so real that 
All he has to do is open his mouth and say a word. His enemies are strewn across the ground. Do you see how that's what happens here in verse 8? It's his utterance that does it. Verse 6, it's his rebuke that does it. The mighty warrior opens his mouth to fight with the sword that comes from his mouth, in other words, his words, and then the earth stands still. Verse 8, the enemies are silenced. Is there anyone here this morning longing for that thing you fear the most to be silenced? Is there anyone here this morning praying that that one great trouble in your life would finally go away? Is there anyone here who's been pleading with God that that thorn that feels like it's been stuck in your side forever would once and for all be removed from you? Our God can do that. He's that powerful. And actually, he can just do it with a word from his mouth. That's all it would take. He can do it, and not only can he do it, he will do it one day. There is a day that will come in which, in which the whole earth and everything that we fear, everything that's risen up against us, will be utterly and completely silenced, as this passage says. And I'm actually praying that today would be that day for someone here, that that thing that you've been taking to the Lord for weeks, months, maybe even years, that he'd remove it, even today. The reason that we believe that he can do it is because we have passage after passage like this one in the scriptures in which we're reminded that our God is faithful to bless and protect his people. Many of you have seen him show up that way in your own life. The testimony of scripture has been validated in your own experience. You've seen it time and time again when the enemy was at your gates. They smelled blood in the water. They were circling. You felt like there was no hope. And then... God showed up as your warrior king to defend you and rescue you at the moment you needed him most. As I was reflecting on this, I thought of story after story after story. One main one that came to mind was the time um, that I fell asleep at the wheel, actually, with my son in the back of the car. It was terrifying in hindsight to think about. Um, But when I fell asleep at the wheel, I swerved to the right, careened off the car next to me. Nobody was hurt. Minimal damage was done. But if I had just swerved the same amount to the left, I would have been coming into 50-mile-an-hour oncoming traffic. Probably my son and myself were both dead. Right? I know for a fact that in that moment, our warrior king was defending me. He rose up to protect me and my son, and I praise him for that. You've got your own stories like that, but, but here's the thing. The number one way that our God has fought for us was not when he protected us in that accident. It was not when he helped us pay that bill that we didn't know how we were going to pay. It's not when he moved in someone's heart to show us mercy when we had wronged them. All those things are praiseworthy. They're worth celebrating. None of those things are the main way in which he's risen up to fight for us. The main, the number one reason, the number one way he's risen up to fight for us was on the cross. In our greatest battle, whether we realize it or not, which is our battle with sin. And the way that he fought was in the person of Jesus Christ, getting up on that cross where you and I belonged, laying down his life in my place and in your place to fight the battle that we should have had to fight but never would have been able to win so that 
you and I don't have to stand before this mighty warrior king as his enemy on that last day. Instead, Jesus stood before him as an enemy for three hours on that cross so that you and I can know him intimately and personally like a bride knows a bridegroom for all of eternity. That's the good news about the great battle that our warrior king fought for us. And it's for that reason, more than any other, that we are moved to praise and fear, which is the response called for in the last three verses of the text. Before we look at those last three verses, let's just honor once again that Selah at the end of verse 9 and reflect on what we've read here in verses 4 through 9. Okay, we've seen who he is. We've seen what he's done. Finally, how should we respond? Verses 10 through 12. And I'm going to suggest that there are two responses called for in those verses. We ought to praise him and we ought to fear him. We ought to praise him and we ought to fear him. The praise I'm looking at uh, is in verse 11. Uh, The call to praise is make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts. That language is language of worship in ancient Israel in the time of animal sacrifice. When when God acts on your behalf, you bring praise to him in gratitude by performing vows, by bringing sacrifices to him. And now, in the era we're living in, on this side of Jesus, there's no longer an animal sacrifice system yet. The New Testament does still call us to sacrifice. It's just the sacrifice now takes a different form, doesn't it? Hebrews 13 says that our sacrifice is now the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so we're going to close out this service after this sermon is done by wholeheartedly using our lips to bring a sacrifice of praise to this God. And, And by the way, the first time this psalm was sung, Psalm 76, I have to believe it was a raucous celebration. Can you imagine that? Imagine that situation. Yes, here's what they would be thinking. Yesterday, we thought that Zion maybe was finished, that we were never going to be able to worship in Zion again. The enemies were at the gates. They were swarming all over the mountains. We had no hope. They were stronger than us. And today, you're telling me that not only Zion still stands, but that we get to go there and worship the one true God who has delivered us from our enemies? Can you imagine how they would have sung this song? when it came time for Psalm 76 to be introduced, it would have been a wholehearted, full-throated celebration. I have to believe that. So it's a call to praise him. Just one more note on this call to praise. Verse 10, because of time, I'm going to have to put a longer explanation in the highlights. Verse 10 is notoriously difficult to understand. Here's just the gist of it, if you read it over. Um, What it's saying there is something like this, that, that, God works out everything in such a way that it results in praise to him. Whether we're willingly praising him or not, whether we're trying to serve him or trying to oppose him, he'll work it out so that he gets praise from it. We get the privilege, though, of willingly praising him out of wholehearted gratitude. And that's the response that we're calling for here today. But there's another response called for here besides praise, and it's the response of fear. Remember, it started back in verse 7, we saw it, and then verse 8, and now we're seeing it in verses 11 and 12. Him who is to be feared, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. So we asked the question at the outset, and now it's time to answer it. How do I praise someone I fear? Or why would I fear someone that I praise? And in order to answer that question, we have to remember 
that there are at least two kinds of fear talked about in Scripture, and both come up in this passage. First, there's a sort of fear that God's enemies should have. The sort of fear that I had when I was a kid about big dogs. Again, another story for another time. But every time I saw a big dog running at me, um, I was terrified and thought, this is the end of my life. This is where it all comes to a close for me. Um, That's actually an appropriate sort of fear for God's enemies to have because they do, in fact, stand before a God who will make an end of them if they don't bow the knee to him. But there's a second sort of fear. There's a sort of fear that is called for for God's people. Now, God's people, God won't make an end of them. He'll be their defender, their protector. He'll save us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why the fear then? Pastor John Piper uh, gives this analogy. It's the best I've heard on it, and so I'm actually just going to read it verbatim. It might be hard to see up on the screen so you can listen if you can't see it. Here's, it takes a little while to develop, but it's helpful in understanding the second kind of fear. He says, Suppose you were exploring an unknown glacier in the north of Greenland in the dead of winter. Just as you reach a sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles and miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow, a terrible storm breaks in. The wind is so strong that the fear rises in your heart that it might blow you over the cliff. That's fear number one, right? The fear of God's enemies that God's enemies have. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. Here, you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. At first, there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. That's fear number one, the fear that God's enemies have. But then, you found a refuge and gained the hope that you'd be safe. But, not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart. Only the life-threatening part. And this is fear number two, the fear that God's people have. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, The feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such a power. And then he summarizes it like this. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Do you fear God in that way? Do you have that sort of fear of God? May we never imagine the God of Psalm 76 as our homeboy. May we never imagine the God of Psalm 76 as someone we can approach casually. May we never presume that when we meet him one day, we'll do some sort of bro handshake or crack a joke. This God is a God to be feared. Two responses called for, praise and fear. Because you and I are finite, sinful people, even this week, you and I will praise any number of things. We will fear any number of things, right? We'll, we'll praise the new season of our favorite show that came out this week. We'll praise our neighbor's new riding lawnmower. We'll praise an athlete who had a spectacular performance. And, and we'll fear some things too. We'll fear that our retirement's fluctuating so much, our retirement fund, we'll, we'll fear that our, our, our kids are going off the rails, we'll fear that taxes are on the rise. In the midst of all that, 
this psalm as a call to remember that there's really only one ultimately deserving of our praise. There's really only one ultimately deserving of our fear. That's why our big idea was this. Because our Lord fights on our behalf, we both praise him and fear him. Because our Lord fights on our behalf, we both praise him and fear him. Now we're able to understand how both of those can coexist, right? Because whatever you came in here finding fearsome in your life this morning, whatever is up at, uh, coming up against your gates, ready to knock them down and threatening you and your stability, the God that we've seen in this text is more than your fears. He's more fearsome than all that even. And so, because he's so fearsome, He's worth calling on, even against our fiercest opponents. He's fearsome enough to handle it. Come to the end of our time here together, but I just need to take two more minutes and take one more just overview pass of this text because there's one more element of it that's pretty cool to take a look at. This text, if you zoom out and look at the whole thing, has two components to it. There's a past and a future component. The past part is kind of particularized to a certain situation. The future part is generalized more broadly. So here's what I mean. In verse 2, it said that this God is reigning from Jerusalem. In verse 6, it said he destroyed a particular army at a particular time and place. In verse 3, it says he saved the people in Zion, which was a particular place in mind at a particular time. But then in the second half of the passage, we see the same God reigning from heaven. Verse 8, we see that he's feared by all the rulers of the earth, not just one particular army in verse 12. And we see him saving all the humble of the earth, not just those in physical Jerusalem. And in a way, this psalm kind of mirrors what the whole Bible does in miniature, right? If you have a Bible at home, it's got an Old Testament that is a past and particularized account of God saving a particular group of people in particular ways. But, and tr- those true stories are previews of something to come in the New Testament, someone to come, the one who was going to extend that salvation of our warrior king beyond just one particular people in one particular place at one particular time to people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the whole earth. And he did so at the cross, and his name's Jesus Christ. If you've heard of him this morning for the first time, or if you're just getting to know this good news, please know that on that cross, he dealt the final death blow to our great enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Yet, those enemies haven't yet died. They're still gasping for air, bleeding out, and as they do, they're trying to bring us down with them. They are the enemies at our gates. One day, those enemies will be finally defeated. They'll breathe their last. One day, our great warrior king, the most fearsome warrior that's ever existed, will have officially won his final battle. And when he does, there will be rest. As verse 8 said, as verse 11 said, as verse 12 said, it'll be silence from the things we fear. They will be no more. The God who will do this, is he big? Is he powerful? Is he frightening? Yes. Yet, we praise the one we fear because he fights on our behalf. That's the message of this victory hymn, Psalm 76. 
And I can't think of a better way to close out our service than to sing our own victory hymn here this morning as we go with everything in us. So I'm going to pray here in a moment and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, thank you for making yourself known to us. Lord, without your revelation to us, without you condescending to us to make yourself known, without you accommodating to our finite minds and our finite ability to understand, we would have been left in the dark, scrambling to try to find some meaning in this life, some sort of purpose in this world to figure out what it's all about. But you've made yourself known in your word in such a way that we can not fully know you, but truly know you. As limited as we are. Thank you that you're not the sort of God that any of us would make up. Lord, you're not always the sort of God that we would create if we were creating a God from scratch. Thank you for that. Because you're infinitely more wise, infinitely more good than we could ever draw up or imagine. Thank you that part of how you've revealed yourself is as the warrior king. And in times when the enemy's at our gates, that brings us great comfort. Thank you for the many times in our own lives in which you've risen up as a warrior to protect us, to watch over us, to defend us from our great enemies. And thank you for that ultimate time at the cross when you fought that ultimate battle on our behalf. As we sing now to you, help us to be full of fear and trembling in our hearts, but the sort of fear that comes when you're in a shelter in the midst of a storm. Help us to praise you with our whole hearts with these words from our lips. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's do that. Let's stand and sing.